0: Good night, live with Tamara Thorne and Alistair Cross. I'd like to thank W.J. Pierce for creating and performing our music. Uh, Good evening and welcome to Thorn and Cross, Haunted Nights Live. We're your hosts, Alistair Cross and Tamara Thorne. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Since Halloween's right around the corner, we'd like to tell you about the Cliff House haunting, which takes place in a very haunted hotel at
1: Halloween.
2: Yeah. It was our thirst. Our thirst. I'm not going to be very good tonight. It was our, I'm too drunk. It was our first Thorn Cross (laughs) novel, (laughs) The Cliff House Haunting, Um, it was. And we celebrated where we celebrate Oktoberfest and serial killers. Since it opened in 1887, the Cliff House Lodge has been plagued by a dark history of murder, mayhem, and ghosts. There are tales of the blue lady who rises from the lake to walk the halls of the Cliff House Lodge when murder is imminent. She hasn't been seen since the Roaring Twenties when a serial co- killer called the Bodice Ripper terrorized the town. Until now. Kelly and Adam Bellamy and their daughter Sarah have renovated Cliff House just in time for Halloween. But now there's a new serial killer on the loose, and the Blue Lady sightings are rampant. Maids are tormented by disembodied whispers, and guests are leaving in the middle of the night as blood-chilling shrieks and mad laughter echo down the halls. As he tries to protect the town, Police Chief Jackson Blue—Blue, that is, like Cat Blue—finds um, himself, sorry, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> finds himself surrounded by a very shady set of suspects, including a sausage-obsessed physician a tyrannical nurse, a penis-painting vandal, a narcissistic author, and a wise-cracking undertaker.
0: Ah, oh, yes. Cliff House. For one particular resident, it's the perfect hunting ground for murder. The Cliff House Haunting is available now in the ebook and paperback at Amazon. Again, this is Thorn and Cross, Haunted Nights Live. Uh, you can learn more about what we do at our websites, which are alistaircross.com and timrothorn.com. You can visit our mutual blog at thornandcross.wordpress.com. If you tweet, our handles are at and at Tamara Thorne. You can visit our Haunted Nights Live page on Facebook, and you can also find us on Instagram. The Thorn and Cross account is Thorn and Cross, and my own Instagram account is official underscore Alistair Cross. For more information on the show, you can visit Authors on the Air on Facebook, Twitter, and at authorsontheair.com. This is a broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, LLC. All right, tonight we are joined by two of our very favorite people. Uh, first, uh, Glenn Hirshberg. Uh, Glenn's stories have earned him three International Horror Guild Awards and the Shirley Jackson Award. <clears throat> His collections include The Two Sams, American Morons, The Janistry, and The Ones Who Are Waving. He is also the author of five novels, The Snowman's Children, The Book of Bunk, and The Motherless Children Trilogy. With Peter Atkins and Dennis Etchison, he co-founded... The Rolling Darkness Review, a touring ghost story performance project. On his own, he founded the CREW program through which he trains his most passionate students and sends them into the surrounding community to run extended creative writing camps for children with minimal access to artistic instruction or formal outlets for expression. He writes and teaches in the Los Angeles area where he lives with his wife and children and cats. Glenn wants us to add that if he'd realized he could write any bio he wants, it would have been far more entertaining. Also, he used to be the time time guy when you called the number or something like that. And Glenn is good buddies with our second guest, and once we read you Pete Atkins' bio, you'll be as confused as we are. Do note, though, that Pete gave us a choice of bios to read, and we, being Thorn and Cross, chose the more colorful of the two. See, this That's is why
3: fair. the Rolling Darkness Review had to stop, because I sent in my – you asked for a bio. I sent in my bio, <laughs> and then Pete saw yet another opportunity to, I will upstage Glenn. Wait till he sees this. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll remind and you next succeeded. year.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Well, so. You're going to have time to do this. Okay. okay. So, uh, um, Alistair. Alistair. Uh,
0: um. Ahem. Ahem. Jolly Ahem. fat man.
2: Okay. <laughs> this is so
0: mean. Okay. He's never going
2: to get through though.
0: Okay. I will. I will. Jolly Fat Man, Peter Atkins, helped mine fuck a generation by writing three of the Hellraiser movies back in the 80s and 90s. He has spent the last two decades disappointing his original fan base by writing quirky little ghost stories in which, for the most part, nobody gets skinned alive. He's a three-time nominee for the British Fantasy Award, and, the lost Fa- and he lost the Fangoria Golden Chainsaw Award for Best Screenplay to Jim Hart's script for Coppola's Dracula, which I think we can all agree was total... F- Fucking shite. He tweets <laughs> at Wyme bastard fifty <laughs> right. five. That said, welcome to the show, you
1: guys. <laughs> Thank oh, you very much. Okay. All, always, we, a, always a pleasure to be here.
2: Ah, <laughs> uh, we love having you guys. You're you oh, the October Express for us. This is it's, this is our Halloween party night, and we're going to turn it
3: over to a you It's becoming a tradition. Yeah, it's a wonderful is, tradition.
1: I'm already so, realizing I, I should have poured a large vodka before uh, before coming on air. I feel like I'm behind the curve on the party, but um, <laughs> we'll make up for that.
2: Well, we're going to let you two take over and sit back and snicker and then get scared while you do your little little version of the Rolling Darkness review, and then we'll talk more after you after you have your your time.
1: Yeah, or yeah, something like that. But this is yeah. your time, and I hope you're you is. We are. Um, <laughs> okay, well, th- you thank you, guys. Thank you very much, Glenn, I mean, Do you want to? Do you want to well, preamble, or shall I preamble? Shall we split well, the preamble? Well, I was going to say.
3: I mean, it would be <laughs> it would be lovely to. Everyone, of course, knows what the Rolling Darkness review was slash might be. Um, <laughs> but I, probably we should start with that, right? Yes,
1: absolutely. Actually, it's just occurred to me, I'm sure it's probably occurred to you, you, after all, were kind enough to put his name in, in the bio, we should certainly raise a metaphorical glass to our dear lost friend, I and, and a re- uh, yes. Yeah. Um, Dennis Etchison, who, um, way over, above, and beyond his connection with the Rolling Darkness Review, was it was a great loss to the field of... I don't even know how you would like me to describe him. He always bristled a little at horror writer. Uh, he was old enough to, to like the phrase suspense writer, which mm-hmm. has somewhat fallen out of fashion. But um, but he he classified most of his work, whether, whether overtly supernatural or not, as suspense fiction. Because I think when Dennis was a young man, way back in the 1840s, um, suspense fiction... <laughs> was an actual category <laughs> was an actual uh, genre. Well, um Dennis well, well, was
3: born in nineteen forty way more honest than slipstream speculative oh, sh- fiction. Yes, the euphemisms right. we mostly use now. Sure, yeah. yeah.
1: I, suspense fiction sounds um so cool to me, because it, it was around, I mean, I was alive, I guess, when suspense fiction was casually used as, as, as a marketing label in magazines and stuff, but I was a kid, and it just, it sounds great when I hear it, because it sounds like something, oh, well, that's out of our reach now, that's, that, that's, a, that's a world that's been lost. True. But, um, and certainly suspense is a big element of Dennis's fiction, um, and suspense was a big element of Dennis's friends' lives as we waited and wondered <laughs> what the fuck he was going to do next. Um, but one of the things he did do, um, I, I just I want to move on to the gags <laughs> in a moment, but I want to be very <laughs> clear to anybody who might be listening uh, that Glenn and I's respect for Dennis the artist uh, knows no bounds.
3: Yeah, and uh, and uh, um, was the word I was going to use.
1: Right, yeah. A great and writer and
3: so much fun despite himself. To do the show with, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: and, and the thing is, you know, I, and I was I, Dennis and I were like best friends for for twenty, twenty five, thirty years, um, and we gave each other shit for nearly all of those thirty years. So I'm sure if there is an afterlife, he will uh, he will be smiling at any tinge of humor they might he might feel from. This broadcast. I'm getting lost in my words. Hmm. What I will say is this one of the things Dennis said, one of his minor achievements, uh, was that he brought Glenn and I together. Um, we, we had, in fact, met briefly prior to this, but Dennis, for a long time, had been saying to me, <laughs> because he was always looking for a way to make a buck, um, we should do a show. We should have a show, a traveling show, like the Rolling Thunder Review, you. but you know, writers. And um, I I think he'd originally talked about it with with another friend, another lost friend of ours, George Clayton Johnson. So he'd been trying to find somebody willing to do the work, because let's face it, what Dennis liked to do was say, this would be good, make it happen. Um, And I, I had resisted taking the bait for several years, but he then met Glenn, I think they both did a reading somewhere at a convention, and suddenly he'd found a guy with some get-up and go. And meaning Glenn, I
3: was I made the mistake of mentioning to him
1: yes. how much
3: fun <laughs> I thought it would be to do Halloween, to do a series of Halloween readings and that we should have a little touring show and there would be something for, you know, grown-ups to do at Halloween that would be appropriately scary, ridiculous and pay proper homage to the holiday we all loved. Mm-hmm. At which point, you know, Dennis looks slyly at me and, you know, 10 years of carrying Dennis's boxes into my future suddenly fell open in front of me. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. And I think even at that point, what what he said in terms of getting this thing going was, Hmm, you should call Pete Atkins. And, uh, <laughs> and Glenn did call me and we arranged a meeting and, um, and Dennis was very much our co-founder and did the show with us the first two years. Absolutely. And, and Glenn just summed up very nicely what the principle was. Um, and The only thing he was too polite to say, which is how I always interpreted it, was that um, most author readings, let's face it, are fucking terrible because they're not necessarily <laughs> yeah. great readers of their own work and and they don't have they don't have the showbiz gene kids um so so the desire because we started in bookstores before we graduated to theaters we started in bookstores and the desire was to actually make audience an audience of readers who were kind enough to come out and see some authors in the flesh Let's actually reward them by being entertaining, by giving them an evening that they might think, oh, that wasn't dreadful, (laughs) Um, as opposed to most.
3: I'm not even sure, speaking of lost friends and all, I may be conflating years here, but I actually think that Dennis and I had that conversation after watching Ramsey Campbell sit in an armchair that he'd somehow found at a hotel Ah. convention, and do a reading in his magisterial Ramsey Campbell way. And one of us saying, uh, probably me, because Dennis would have known this already, I loved Ramsey Campbell's work, I had never seen him read, said to Dennis, now that was actually a good reading. Um, And that (laughs) may have been where this whole conversation started. Mm -hmm. So too bad we never got to do it it with Ramsey, Ramsey, which would have been fun, who I know is another lifelong best friend of yours. Everyone's um, a lifelong best friend of <laughs> you. Everyone who matters <laughs> Everyone who can.
1: And, and just for clarity Although Glenn's jump to mentioning Ramsey was another lost friend Let's be very clear um, As of this moment That is not uh, what I meant to imply <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Ramsey is still very much with us Or is he <laughs> Has he in fact been playing The long game of the dead For many a year anyway um yeah, Dennis and Ramsey where did he get uh,
3: that armchair
1: Where did he get that armchair? <laughs> there are certain powers that are granted when certain deals are made <laughs> um, yeah Ram, yeah ramsey's a great reader and, and certainly some people are um and <laughs> some people aren't but um we we added music uh to the show we wanted to have that element where Glenn and i dennis um became an emeritus member, let's say, after the first couple of years, um, and then Glenn and I ran with it. We always wanted live music. Uh, we eventually... We foolishly
3: um, tried to do that ourselves the first year. The
1: first year, yes. Which yes. was overwhelming,
3: but, uh, although it did produce Dennis's favorite picture of himself. Correct. Uh, There is a
1: lovely photograph of Dennis reading with Glenn on keyboard and me on guitar with uh, dry ice and the Grim Reaper. And it was actually just in the back corner of the Dark Delicacies bookstore in Burbank. But somehow Jonas Yip, um, who took the photo, I think just on his iPhone, um, caught some magic that, let's face it, wasn't really present in the room. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, as they say in the Man Who Liberty Valance, print the legend, and the photograph yeah. looks – it looks like we hit the ground so much more f- – hit running and so much more firmly than we actually did, um, that, that piece of photographic evidence would suggest. We later added uh, a wraparound play featuring our comic personas, Aldi Black and Artie Mack, named after Aldi Blackwood. And- Jonas and and Rex
3: Flowers joined us as permanent as the house band. uh, and started scoring our shows with these really memorable atmospheric soundtracks. Yeah,
1: absolutely terrific.
3: We had Uh, fabulous guest stars like the legendary Tamara Thorne.
1: Yes, she did show up. I believe she died on stage mm-hmm. that evening. I, I certainly did, yes. I believe she insisted
3: on dying on stage that I evening. I think in her story, she killed us all. It's my memory. I did probably. But, uh, that I, too. I usually do.
1: Yeah, I, I know well, that she wanted know. to be strangled. She asked if I'd <laughs> strangle her, and she said, make it look Turns good. Me yeah. Or to her the Tamra the Tamara Thornway. Um yeah. <laughs> and, then, and and eventually we were lucky enough to bring on my, my old friend uh, Kevin Gregg as yep. both a performer and eventually director of the show, who again <laughs> managed to make it look briefly as if we knew what we were doing and it ran and, and you know it may raise from the it may rise from the dead yet, but it ran essentially from two thousand and four to two thousand and fifteen, a couple of years off here and there in the, in the and um, it was it was a fun thing. Paul Miller of Earthling Press produced uh, a chapbook uh, with news stories from Glenn and I and guest writers uh, for eight or nine of the 11 shows we did over that 14-year period. Uh, those chapbooks are, of course, now highly collectible. He says, laughing hollowly. I think they're all still available for about twelve dollars on eBay. But there's gold in there, I'm telling you. Go find them. Um, and that was the Rolling Darkness review. And and people, thank God, seemed to enjoy it and liked it. And
3: um, it did lead we, to, you know, some truly, all kidding aside, just some really memorable performance nights and travel experience. It was just such great fun. And um, often not what you'd expect. The, we did our worst. I think my least favorite and most favorite shows back to back. For example, yeah. I my mean, least favorite show was the one I was mo- one of the ones I was most looking forward to in a wine cave in Napa. Um, we were so excited about the atmosphere and this whole idea, and of course, when we got there, um, we were the bonus entertainment for after a long tasting. So everybody in the audience was drunk and well on their way to being asleep by the time we started the show. And then at the end of the show, we had our chapbooks out for sale in the back. And, you know, they had paid, I'm sure, $50 to attend this this event.
1: Not to us. Not us,
3: to attend the tasting. We were just the throw-in entertainment. And so they figured our chapbooks were, you know, their takeaway for for their money. And so they cleaned us out of all our merchandise too, without paying. So,
1: so there went our gas money. The, the only <laughs> right. way we were underwriting the tour. Yeah. So wow. then we were uh.
3: bitterly. And then our our musician, quote, the guy who'd been traveling with us to do the music for these two shows, uh, you know, I'm I'm using air quotes, got sick. Meaning he saw just how successful this was going to be. He decided and he <laughs> quit. Uh, and so we were on our way to the Donner Pass to Truckee. Bitter, grumpy, wondering why bother with any of it, and got to this little bookstore in Truckee with no idea how we were going to do the show.
1: Glenn, just, be, just for people who don't live in California, although they might recognize the name The Donner Pass, which I hope is giving them the right kind of atmosphere, yeah. we should point out that Truckee <laughs> is, is a lovely, uh, tiny, tiny town up there mm-hmm. by The Donner Pass. Right on I the mean, border, it would be churlish to say it's in the middle of nowhere, but that's precisely where it is. Um, well, and we were wondering and we as we not, went up
3: there, so how did we, yeah. how did we decide to do a show there anyway? They, um, they
1: asked. They they, they asked. were one of the right. you know they were one of the <laughs> three
3: people who said sure. Yeah, you're right. Uh, well, they were one of the three people. <laughs> Other people said sure. They asked. You're right. We would go anywhere for that. Yeah. Um, but so there we were, bitter, grumpy, no musician, no idea how we were going to do the show. And we we just started, as people walked into this little bookstore where we were doing it that night, we just started enlisting the audience to do sound effects and all the things we had to have happen.
1: In in and the absence of the musician. Yeah. yeah,
3: and wound up having this delightful, hilarious show that ended with a, a 10-year-old whose name we never got bursting and with perfect timing through our little backdrop for the for the final scare in a thulu mask and we just had the best time and it was the, that was yeah it was great it was great it was great we i felt i felt actually like a traveling performer there that was the real thing
1: yeah and awesome. again just because i you know i'm so grateful to everybody who helped us out uh, along too. the way and we're fellow performers the night before glenn Perhaps they've wiped it from their memory too, and I, I preemptively apologise for reminding them of it. But um, sharing the pain in the Napa, Napa cave with us wh- was pets gone wild. Actually, that night it was which our, our right, friend from was, the, the Bay yeah, Area, Rick who played Quessel, it, the yeah. book,
3: the National Public Radio book uh, reviewer, and his quite lovely sort of new music, you know, experimental ambient ensemble. You're right, and then we had another guy who was going to, if you remember,
1: he was, he was simply going to meet us in. He was going to meet thing. us in yes. Truckee,
3: so right. He he just sensed from afar that no, <laughs> right. this is not worth my time. You're you're right. Yeah. That's 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 a more accurate. Anyway, yeah. so that's what the Rolling Darkness review was, and we never exactly killed it. We just no. haven't like, had like- time energy to. Do, we've been busy with other things, but we still talk yeah. about. I think
1: it yes, could it didn't. Well be like the end of every horror movie. It it slipped away just before the closing credits. Right? Did it die? <laughs> Does it sleep? Will it rise again? <laughs> we're not entirely sure, but we were thrilled when Alistair and Tamara invited us to come along for Absolutely. the Halloween show. Um, because the thing is. <laughs> All, all the fun and games aside, the heart of the Rolling Darkness Review shows was indeed authors reading their works. Um, so although we cannot bring the Rolling Darkness Review uh, full bells and whistles comic extravaganza to you this evening, Glenn and I will um, read some, a brief section or so um, as a sort of, what did you call it, Glenn? Rolling Darkness Redux.
2: Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I love it. <laughs> oh and and we didn't do our usual coin toss, Glen. I have no idea. Do you want to go first? Do you want me well, to sure, go first? A,
3: yeah, a, do you want to literally, literally well toss a coin? a coin? I'm sorry? No, I I I'm whatever you prefer, but I'm happy to go first since you were always willing to do that at the show. So whatever <laughs> whatever you want to do. Uh
1: sure. I have a slight anxiety that it's like that's not how we do it. But, yeah, no, go ahead.
3: (laughs) It's been three years, Pete. Let's let's bring bring the gods down. Okay. (laughs) Who knows what adventures might await us if we just take this bold step? All right. (laughs) Okay. Of course, the risk is that I may put everybody to sleep by the time they get to you because here's the thing. Um, what I've learned about myself as a writer is that, especially when I write horror, my specialty is definitely I tend to write at novella length often, and my specialty is the slow creeping freezing burn that's that's what I do. I was very excited when I was going to read part of this new story uh today because. It's much shorter. It's about half the length of my usual. I still can't read the whole thing. Uh, but, but it's much shorter. And then I went to find an excerpt and realized that what I've done is a more efficient, slow, creeping, freezing burn. So here's some atmosphere for you. You have to. I mean, I hope it's satisfying because you're not going to get to exactly the part where it all catches fire and I'm going to have to introduce a little bit of the setup, but here's here's a little Halloween flavor for you at the very least. Um, so this is from a story called Slough. S-L-O-U-G-H. There are many ways to pronounce that word. I'm using the one that is usually used, the pronunciation is usually used to mean like marshy backwater. Um, so a slough, which is the name of a town in this story. So what we have, we have a photographer, freelance photographer named Gabby. From uh, she's been living in the Bronx. She is in Providence, Rhode Island, to photograph a rally by a white supremacist group, calling themselves the Faith Families of the Fox. Uh, and they are headed by a white-haired, old, uh, you know, woman, who looks but acts nothing like Dr. Ruth a little firebrand who calls herself Dr. (laughs) Killy. The rally gets canceled because of the threat of an incoming thunderstorm, which Gabby finds very funny that the white supremacists are not going to hold their rally for fear of endangering the children, but there it is. Um, And so she winds up with a very unusual day with nothing to do in Providence, Rhode Island. And on the spur of the moment, she texts, An old college friend named Julian, who she hasn't seen in about 15 years, who she remembers living somewhere in Rhode Island. He texts right back and says, yes, you should come see me, and directs her. And so she rents a car, and she starts off down to the southern part of the state to an area called South County. Um, And Julian was a friend from uh, their college, which she refers to as Northwest No Place. It was a you know, Midwestern directional school, like Northwest Iowa State, somewhere like that. Um, Julian had a nickname in college, which was Boom uh, for Boomerang, because he kept disappearing from college, reappearing back in Rhode Island, and then eventually making his way back to school. So Julian now has, she knows Julian has two preteen girls. She knew he had a wife and no longer does, although she has no idea what happened to the wife. Her name was Lori. And she knows that the drive to South County winds up taking her much longer than it seems like it should take to drive the length of Rhode Island. Um, but finally, she does find this town of Slough on the water down sort of Narragansett area. Um, it's kind of a run-down, strange little place. And she makes her way out to the edge of that, right along the water. Um, And she arrives at Julian's house. Uh, Julian gives her his wife Lori's old bathing suit because the girls want to go for a swim, even though the rain has started. So it is raining out. It's perfectly warm, but it's raining out. And that's where we pick up. They're about to leave their house to head down to the beach. So here we are. The walk proves short maybe a quarter mile back down that frontage road, past those shady houses turned toward each other. The rain didn't so much tap the trees and tarmac as breathe over it. I got wet without feeling it or without feeling different than when I was dry. Branches and bushes twitched all around. I would probably glimpsed or sensed more living things on this walk, I remember thinking, than I did on my average workday sprint down crowded sidewalk to catch the two or three train. The houses, though, stayed motionless and silent, but not in any sort of peopleless way. They just seemed nestled in place, rooted as tree trunks. Big dunes, I said, my gaze having slipped toward the water I couldn't yet see. Oh, sorry, the one other thing I should mention is that Julian's house feels very old. It's full of grandfather clocks and all kinds of ticking things, and she's very impressed with the workmanship, and he tells her that everything in the house was built by slaves, and when she is surprised by this and says something about slaves in Rhode Island. He tells her that actually by percentage, Rhode Island had by far the most slaves of any of the northern colonies. So, um, big dunes, I said, my gaze having slipped toward the water I couldn't yet see. The sand flowed so easily, almost liquidly, out of the grass and neighborhood that I hadn't processed its height. These dunes were taller than me, high enough to obscure everything beyond them. For some reason, Julian laughed. Ahead, the girls abandoned their wagon at the foot of a dune and vanished. I glanced at their dad, my old friend I hadn't seen in 15 years. The man who'd brought Fulmenko to Northwest No Place. Disappeared. Come back. Disappeared. Come back. Boom. He was still in the same shorts he'd had on when I drove up, same shapeless shirt. Rain flicked his skin without beating or running anywhere on him. As though sinking into sand, I thought. And finally, after all these years, realized what Julian's skin tone was. Literally sand, this sand, dune color. He's even dune-shaped, I decided, in that way of dunes not quite having shape, not the same shape anyway, from one instant to the next. Only when we came abreast of the wagon did I see where the girls had gone, a sandy path cut between two dunes fully twice my height, demarcated by ramshackle red wooden fencing on either side. The path led to beach, wide and not quite white and empty, Beyond that, lay ocean, slapping in white-tipped cross-currents against the shore. "'Should we bring the wagon?' I asked Julian's back as he moved purposefully, almost eagerly, down the path. He turned, raising an eyebrow again, as though just remembering I was there. "'What for?' From way off to the right, farther than seemed safe or even possible, one of Julian's girls shrieked. I hurried forward, realizing even as I did that Julian hadn't reacted. I caught up, and we cleared the dunes, just in time to see both girls hurtling down the sand— arms outstretched and heads thrown back, sailing over the surface of the water like seabirds before plunging into it. They dropped their towels in a heap near more red fencing that jutted a surprising way out onto the beach, almost to the water's edge. Beyond it, I was surprised to see a curve of green hillside ringing the edge of the bay. I decided it was a bay, wreathed in mist. It was hard to tell how far that hillside stretched. Far, though. Another full-on peninsula, and in the midst I saw houses, white and palatial like docked ocean liners. Not rooted, I thought, with no context or source for the thought. Who is there, I heard myself ask. Again, Julian's answer was to some other question. They have their own beach. What beach is this? Blue. What's left? He might have meant that as the beach's nickname or full name, What's Left Beach, unless it was a self abnegating joke or a comment on land erosion. Julian was proving as tough to pin down as he'd ever been, even in conversation. Asking him questions was like talking to Rain. I almost tripped over the old woman. I hadn't seen her or anyone. Suddenly my foot caught in sand or discarded sandal, and I almost toppled into the laps of a white-haired couple I swear must have crawled out of the earth like crabs. There'd been no one there, then there was, and they almost had me. Hands out, stumbling and apologizing and swearing, I staggered sideways and somehow kept my feet. Sorry, I breathed, got steady, glanced down. Instinctively, my hands flew to my chest where at least one of my cameras generally hung. How the fuck did she get here, I thought. And only when Julian greeted her, said some name other than Dr. Tilly, did I realize it wasn't her. This woman didn't even look like her once I got a clearer view. Too rumpled, stick thin. Same shock of hair, same startling sparkle in the eyes, I guess, but that was it. Just another old woman who'd sucked something juicy out of life and retained it somehow. There was no other resemblance. Her husband, brother, manservant, how do I know, looked surprisingly burly, broad-shouldered, shoulders, shouldered, his pectorals heavy, only slightly saggy like folded sails. But the sand had sunk a little more underneath him or he'd settled more deeply into it. That, more than anything else, is what suggested the Tillies to me his strength subservient to her regal straight back. Sand dotted them all over, coating their legs and abdomens as though they really had been buried in it. The thought should have been funny and was, but only momentarily. Not crabs crawling out of beach at all, foxes by their burrow. Wet one today, Julian said, eyes on the bobbing blonde heads of his girls in the water. Might go all week, the old man answered. The woman sighed, I've never heard a more serene sigh. "'Suits me,' she said. "'It wasn't her voice that jolted me. "'It sure as hell wasn't that sigh. "'It may have been the way she kept her hands buried to the wrist "'in what's left beach, "'never once glancing at the hillside houses or Julian or me, "'or it it may not have been anything to do with her. "'But what I heard in those two words was, "'Fuck you all.' "'Friend of yours,' I muttered as we moved away. "'Known them my whole life,' Julian said, "'not quite answering again.' That's where I got in fuck you all, I realized. She'd known Julian his whole life, never once seen me, hadn't asked, wasn't interested. Closer to the water, the clouds lowered still more over the bay like the lid of an aquarium. I wasn't actually considering swimming. I hadn't swum in years, uh, probably since I moved to New York. As a kid, during summers, I jumped off a low, disused railroad bridge with a few other girls into a way too shallow river. Our very own poor kid, what's left river. Swimming had never drawn me much. But now I experienced an unexpected moment of dread, mostly because it had been a seriously long time since I'd seen Julian's girls. Grabbing at his hand, I raked the surface of the bay with my gaze. I saw nothing for what felt like a full minute, and that's counting from after I'd noticed. Julian, fuck, where? Girl one, the elder, popped up way out to sea, half-turned toward us, like a sleek blonde whale breaching. She vanished again, just as Girl 2 surfaced much closer to shore, rose halfway into the air, and sank. Coming, Julian said, kicking off his flip-flops and moving fast, seemingly keeping himself from running only by force of will. I think I'll just... You're already wet. Keep me company. He grinned wide and guileless. I never have company. Dropping my towel, not quite shaking my dread, or managing to stop my eyes from darting around for another reassuring glimpse of Girl, I followed. Inanely, I remembered some lifeguard admonition from the one summer of sleepaway camp my parents had managed to afford. Never, ever swim alone. Of course, I wasn't alone. I wished for my my phone. I I wished for my phone anyway. By the time my toes touched water, Julian was waist-deep, sinking fast. Rain slid down him. Girl 2 popped up startlingly close, splashed him, and kicked away and under. Glancing back, I saw dunes the fence stretch of all but empty beach, the old couple wavering in the drizzle, the second old couple, white-haired woman, this one in some kind of bonnet, guy in a Panama hat with a cigar drooping so far out of his mouth it looked like an icicle, just spreading towels and joining them. Without meaning to, I edged farther from shore. The bay climbed over my knees, splashed at my thighs, except when looking straight down at my waist, I couldn't even tell where my submersion point was. Not only was everything wet, Everything was the same shimmery, same clammy warm, air, bay, skin, rain, Lori's black braiding suit, which hung heavy and surprisingly hard like a turtle shell, something closing over or growing out of me. I didn't like it. I turned to wade out. She hit me, Julian's daughter, one of them, just hard enough to knock me off balance. I swore as I fell, submerged momentarily, felt bottom and stood. I couldn't have been under for more than a second. Just long enough for sensation to slam me. The sound shells rolling, water slopping and popping, Girl Two's laughter, which I couldn't really have heard and did, streaming around or filling the bay. The scratching, as if Girl Two had raked me as she knocked me over. But there were no marks. What I'd felt was just her skin, scaly sandpaper, like a shark's. The single glimpse blonde hair, long body wriggling effortlessly away, vanishing the way sharks do. Scrabbling to get my feet under me, I stood, swayed there, streaming in the rain. I couldn't see Julian or his children, just gray water and sky, knitting together. A more perfect union scrolled nonsensically through my head. If I turned, I thought, I knew, the beach would be gone. Fence, dunes, old couple, couples. I was no place but for real this time. I'd grown up somewhere that had never really been its own place. A half-suburb of a not-quite herb. This had been somewhere, though. A region colony, country it wasn't now, was barely an appendage wet one today, Julian whoops, sorry, wrong page Julian popped up straight ahead smiling wide, my feckless flamenco friend, streaming melting, he beckoned I didn't want to come, stepped forward anyway, I felt myself sinking mirroring him as he lowered toward the water, I went under when he did that's when I finally saw them or did I What did I see? How could I have? They were 15 feet away, maybe more, far enough that I shouldn't, couldn't have seen anything. And yet I was scrabbling, half-screaming, as my feet flailed for sand to stand on. I vaulted up, gasping for breath, as though I'd been held under, near drowned. Turning, I kept jerking my head down, tensing to leap if one of those girls suddenly eeled around me, bumped me again. I was watching the water, not the beach, so I didn't see everyone else until I was already back on land. I never stop moving. I'm sure of that. Mostly I'm sure of that because I'm still here, still me. I don't know what that means. I never have. I just know it's true. Questions bombarded me, poured down like rainwater. Where had they come from? When? How long had I been under? They were in a sort of semicircle, not really a formation, all on their beach towels and not all of them old, spread across the sand like an extended family to watch fireworks. One spindle-armed, pointy-shaped girl, uh, She, uh, sorry, hold on, she didn't really look uh, like, doctor, like a Dr. Tilly kid. None of them did. Even had a bag of marshmallows or something squishy. She kept sticking in her fist, squeezing, then lifting and licking the goo from between her fingers, laughing. The old couple I'd seen first still sat on their blankets. Instinctively, I lurched to the right to skirt them, which meant having to dart between the towels of two other families. At the time, I was just praying, clenching my hands, silently begging them not to lunge for me, to let me go. But in retrospect, I'd almost rather they had lunged. What they did instead was ignore me, as though I wasn't there, as though I never had been. Nevertheless, I almost left as I crossed the barrier they hadn't exactly created, then fled between dunes back to the road. I'll stop there. That's gorgeous. <laughs>
1: that was great. <clears throat> so, yeah. Truly. Well, yeah. thanks.
3: <laughs> you know, that's I wish Asking
1: him questions was like talking to Rain. Very nice, uh-huh. Paul. I know. Very Incredible. nice. Thank you. Yeah, I, I um, cut that too. Beautiful. That was, yeah. Fantastic.
3: I, uh, yeah, I cut that
0: too.
3: You know, I like... I still like that thing that... um we used to, that Pete and I used to talk about, about situations you never, ever want to be in, in places you don't want to leave. And I think that's really home base for <laughs> me for ghost stories or for horror Beautiful. stories. I really yeah. like
2: that.
3: It's my problem with remember. many, like Cliff House, that sounds great to me. I'm in.
1: Sure.
3: Uh, yeah, right. yeah <laughs>
1: exactly.
3: Yeah, yeah, I remember making the building whatever
1: it. unpleasantness might happen just, just for the flavor. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
2: So now we have to say we will get cut off in 19 minutes, so we need to get um, okay. Pete well, read and
1: I'm never long. We'll have you back. Let's uh, okay. Let's <laughs> see and I'll read even because we faster. want to ask you what you guys
2: are up to too. So
1: sure. All okay. right. Um, I will say this. Uh, this is you see, Glenn is diligent and a hard worker, so he read you guys something new. I am neither of those things, so I'm going to read you something from an older book. Um, But it is Halloween y. It's very Halloween y, the most specifically Halloween scene I think I've ever written. Um, So I thought that would be appropriate for the show. All right. Um, We require very little setup for this. The protagonist of uh, the. It's from from, uh, uh, a novel of mine called Moontown. The protagonist, uh, whose name is Shelley. Uh, Works as an empath, helping people get over childhood traumas and buried fears. um, Helps uh, discover repressed memories. And this is from an early chapter in the book where she um, discovers a repressed memory of her own when she finds a book that she remembers reading as a kid and had blocked from her memory. And certain things in that book give rise to this specific memory of her when she was seven or eight years old. Uh, So I'll just begin. Knockety knock, knock, knock. That's the sound they hear, Shelley and her mom. The sound of someone making a big production number out of knocking at the front door. Shelley doesn't like the sound and pretends not to hear it. She knows that it's late. She knows that it's dark outside and she doesn't want the door to be opened Knockety knock, knock, knock. Shelley and her mom are watching TV. They're watching something mom likes. Mom likes really old movies. Not just old, really old. Not just movies from before there were colors in the world, but movies from back before people had learned to talk. This is called slapstick, mom has said when they've watched similar things before. Slapstick. Shelley does not like the sound of that. She's a good girl. She's never been spanked or slapped, but she bets it hurts more with a stick. The show they're watching now, though, seems much meaner than the other ones Shelley has seen, as if this is what slapstick does when it thinks the teacher isn't looking. There were two men. One of them was big, and one of them was little. They wore clothes that were baggy and dusty, and their faces were very white, as if they were dusty too, but the black lines around their eyes had hard, dark edges, they 'd come back to see a butcher who had cheated them out of some money, and they had done awful things to his shop and were now setting about doing awful things to him <laughs> aren 't they silly? Mum says to Shelley with that big, happy smile she uses when she wants Shelley to believe something that is not true. Shelley doesn 't think the men are silly; she thinks the men are mean and crazy, and she watches disapprovingly as they feed the butcher who'd stolen their money into his own mincing machine, the little one laughing silently as the sausages come out, while the larger one stirs right out of the screen at them, winking and nodding and putting his thumb up in the air. Knockety knock, knock, knock. As if the knocking itself is the trigger of the memory, Shelley suddenly remembers that tonight is Halloween and that unannounced visitors are not necessarily unusual. But there's still something about the sound of that knock. The sound of its insistence that she doesn't like, and she's not very happy when Mom stands up without a word and starts walking toward the front door. <clears throat> Mom hasn't told Shelley to come with her, but Shelley thinks perhaps she' better, and she catches up to Mom just as she opens the door. Shelley wonders when the streetlights went out, and why it's only the light of the moon that shines on the two people who are standing on their front porch. For some reason, Mum doesn't seem to recognize them straight away, but Shelley does. They're the men they've just been watching, the men from slapstick. They're sort of in color now, though they're doing the best they though they're doing their best to pretend that they aren't. The various pieces of clothing are either black or white or gray, and their faces are covered with thick white stuff. Shelley supposes the white stuff is makeup, like Mum wears sometimes. "'but it's powdery and lumpy "'and looks like it wouldn't feel nice to wear or to touch. "'Somewhere between where they came from "'and their arrival at Shelley's front door, "'the men have learned to talk. Oh look, Mr. S,' says the bigger one. "'A customer!' "'The little one smiles. Two customers, Mr. S,' he says, "'and his eyes flicked from Shelley to her mom and back again.' A major and a minor. Standard and economy sizes, as it were, says the first. Full strength and concentrated, says the second, nodding in agreement. Regular and condensed. Oh, condensed, the smaller one says admiringly. Oh, Mr. S., you've hit it precisely. Condensed. Just add water. Yeah. Before you throw it in the pan. And then they both look at Shelley and laugh. Like they've just made a hilarious joke. Shelley remembers what they did to the butcher on her TV, and she does not think the joke is very funny. She reaches her hand quietly up toward her mum's, but Mum doesn't notice, and Shelley doesn't make a fuss because she doesn't want to draw even more attention from the man. Why isn't Mum bothered by these people? Shelley wonders. It isn't only that they're from the TV, but they're grown ups. And that isn't right at all. Halloween visitors are supposed to be children. It's not. What's that word? That mum word? Appropriate. It's not appropriate for grown ups to be out knocking on people's doors and looking for candy. And Shelley finds their clothes and their makeup scary in a way that isn't fun scary, like the masks and the costumes worn by the neighborhood kids, even the older ones. These men aren't playing, let's pretend. This is who they truly are. New to the neighborhood, madam says the bigger one, to Shelley's mum, introducing ourselves, as it were. As surprised to be here, says the smaller one, as you are no doubt surprised to see us. The bigger one nods. For what unlikely twist of a benevolent fate, he says. What curious whim of the gods of comic happenstance would have deposited upon your humble and, no offence, madam, singularly unprepossessing doorstep, the likes of us. <clears throat> Shelley hears how proud the big man sounds when he says the likes of us. And when Mom doesn't say anything, when neither she nor Shelley clap, the little one cocks his head as if surprised. The uncrowned kings of vaudeville, he says, and the newly celebrated sensations of the silver screen. Mr. Sponge, says the big one, gesturing at his friend. And Mr. Scrotum, says the little one, gesturing back.
2: (laughs) Two who
1: should never be strangers they say together, and they both bow at the same time. Shelley is all at once very aware of the question that the men haven't asked. She doesn't really want to say it for them, but something makes her feel like she has to. Perhaps asking it will make everything go more quickly. Trick or treat, she says. The two men, are they men? Shelley suddenly wonders, because the baggy and grimy white shirt beneath the dusty black jacket of the bigger one It seems as if it might be trying to hide mum-sized breasts. Look at each other in response to Shelley's question, and Shelley does not like the mutual eager glint that comes into their eyes, especially when it's turned back to look again at her and mum. Trick or treat, says Mr. Scrotum, as if trying the words out in his mouth and deciding he likes them. Trick or treat? Huh. Well, a little of both, I'd say, mistress. How about you? Smidgen of each, Mistress, says Mr. Sponge, nodding thoughtfully. Smidgen of each. Though they appear to be addressing each other, their black outlined eyes remain fixed on Shelley and her mom. But first, says Mr. Scrotum, raising a finger, some business. A matter of no pressing urgency, but it never hurts to take care of these things should opportunity deign to present itself. We can't help but find ourselves wondering, lady and small companion. If by any chance our dear friend Nell has been by this way before our own arrival, he twists his head a little, trying to look past Shelley and her mum into the house's hallway. Might in fact have left something for us. A jar, says Mr. Sponge, with contents. Mr. Scrotum has only said Nell, but when his friend says jar, Shelley knows exactly who it is that they're talking about. She knows that Nell is short for Eleanor, whose last name is Rigby, and who is the monster in that old song that her mom likes. Shelley knows that Nell Rigby is a monster because Nell Rigby wears a face that she keeps in a jar by the door. Shelley stops herself from turning to look at the hall stand. She doesn't want to look because she is afraid that the jar will, in fact, be there, is afraid that something pale and moist will be floating in its oily water. She doesn't look. She doesn't even twitch her eyes. But Mr. Sponge winks at her anyway, like he knows precisely what she was thinking, like they have a secret now, a special secret that makes them friends. No, I'm sorry, says Mom. You're the first tonight. Really, says Mr. Scrotum. I find myself most surprised by that morsel of information. Don't you, Mistress? Find yourself surprised by that? Surprised? says Mr. Sponge, not been this astonished since my last plate of steak tartare turned out to be a juggler I'd once worked with at the Palace of Varieties in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. caw, oh, not Rodney Magic Hans Russell, asks Mr. Scroton. The very same, sir, says Mr. Sponge, a most amusing fellow, as you no know, doubt recall, Mr. S, with a nice line in plate spinning, tasted like dehydrated camel. Mr. Scroton looks down at Shelley. First tonight, are we? He says,
3: "'Not even a quick visit
1: from your friend Johnny in the Dark.' Shelley shakes her head. "'I don't know him,' she says, "'and tells herself that that's the truth, "'even though, like before, she immediately knows who he means. "'Mr. Sponge looks at her, too. "'Well, that is indeed passing strange, my little miniature,' he says, "'because he certainly knows you.' "'He turns to his partner. "'Speaks most fondly of her, does he not, Mr. S?' like they're the oldest and dearest of acquaintances, says Mr. Scroton, but he says it like someone who is already growing bored with that particular topic, and he snaps his fingers by his own face, as if suddenly remembering more important business. He beans at Shelley and her mother, as if whatever comes next is sure to be fun. Here's the thing, Mrs. and Midget, he says, whether they find themselves on the finest stages of the Orpheum circuit, or in these most miserable and reduced of circumstances. Mr. Sponge and Mr. Scrotum hold only one truth to be self-evident. He pauses for a second, as if ready to receive guesses. When none are forthcoming, he continues. And what truth is that, Mr. S? That the show, says Mr. Sponge, must go on. That the show must go on, says Mr. Scrotum, and his eyes are alight with joy. "'So what shall it be?' he asks, his gaze not leaving Shelley and her mum. "'A mimetic representation of the sundering of Babylon's great war, perhaps. "'Or maybe the comic dialogue we like to call "'how the green death came to the palace of the Khan with balloon animals. "'For we have been princes in different kingdoms,' says Mr. Sponge, in a stranger voice. "'And our memory is as long as our talents are timeless.' "'Though I wonder, block and chip,' says Mr. Scroton, "'as if his partner hadn't spoken, "'if it might not, after all, "'be our soft-shoe and black-face interpretation "'of the stations of the cross "'that would most float your boats and bob your barnacles.' "'He raises a questioning eyebrow at Shelley's mum. "'Now,' he says, without really giving her time to answer. "'How about this, then?' "'And then he drives his hand through her mother's chest.' And pulls out her heart. And we'll leave it there, I think. <laughs>
3: that, wonderful. Damn it. <laughs> uh, we
2: love it. We're, We're slaps- going to have to schedule slaps- a longer does. show next year.
3: What slapstick yes, does we when no one's looking. Oh, thank you. Okay. So <laughs> we,
2: we are About literally down to our last couple minutes. What are you guys up to? Okay,
3: <laughs> Glenn, you yes. go first uh this story is coming out in a couple of months in space and time. I've got a novel about a character of mine called The Collector who's been in other stories that I am wrapping up. And I've got some kind of outside the genre things that will be filtering their way out next year. So all kinds of things. How about you, Pete?
1: Uh, well, that is, that's all great, and I'm very much looking forward to the collector stuff, uh, particularly. Um, I I am inching my way glacially towards a new collection. Uh, I have about forty-two thousand words, which has taken me ten years of short fiction to put together since the last collection, but that will be coming out soon. Um, but I am sort of I'm in process of recording audio books of my uh, of my backlist, paltry though that backlist may be. Uh, including the novel you just heard an extract from, uh, Moontown. Uh, these, we hope, will be out before the end of the year. Uh, and I may as well say now that I'm shamelessly exploiting my past. Uh, I'm reading two of my own books. I'm reading Rumors of the Marvelous and, and the novel Big Thunder. Um, but the black Pope of Hell himself, Mr. Doug Bradley, a.k.a. Pinhead, has kindly agreed to narrate Morningstar for me, and everybody's favorite final girl, Ms. Ashley Lawrence, Kirsty from Hellraiser and Hellbound, will be reading Moontown. So you'll get, you'll, you'll get to hear Ashley do Mr. Sponge and Mrs. Scroham in those funny voices. <laughs> Excellent. Um, and oh, e-books are available. And I, oh, I've got a short story coming out in a Steve Jones anthology next January. That will be my, my latest new piece. I, uh, go back, Glenn. Say more.
3: Me? Okay, no, no. We,
1: that's all That's we, all good. Um, I think, uh,
2: we're we're going to have you. We'll be in yeah. touch tomorrow, and, and we're going to ask you both back singularly next year. Besides, we want to do a big rolling redux next time, too. Okay. <laughs> time. Thanks for having us,
3: <laughs> as always. You guys are awesome. I feel, we thank love you. having you. We definitely we do. want to do it
0: again next year. Well,
3: we appreciate sure. it. Sorry for monopolizing all your time, but you told us to do it. Nope. You have, uh, okay. You're perfectly yes, okay. fine. You
0: did, you, you're perfectly yeah. fine. We just, uh, yeah, no, you're perfectly fine. It was it, we're just going to be it cut off, off in like 30
2: seconds now. Okay. okay. We love it. Goodbye, yeah. <laughs> All right. So, uh, goodbye,
0: right. okay. Thank you all. It's for, been swell. Thank you for being on. We'll be in touch. Thank everybody yes. for listening. And until next week, we wish you haunted nights,
2: sweet screams, and happy Halloween.
0: Happy Halloween. Thank you. Good night, live with Tamara Thorne and Alistair Cross.